Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are not some impersonal force out there that we have no hope of knowing, but Lord, through your wisdom, you made a way. You made a way for us to be connected to you spiritually, to be adopted into your family as your children, to get to know you, to get to know who you are. We have no hope aside from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and taking that for our own. So Lord, I, I, I pray that your word would go forth today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it cuts us to the deepest level we can be cut and exposes everything before you because you know everything about us anyways. So Lord, I pray that we would be like Mary and sit at your feet and, and just soak everything up that you have for us. But that it wouldn't just be us soaking things up. We would then go out and do things with it. That we would allow it to change our hearts, change our lives, and, and share your love with somebody else. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As long as humanity has existed, I think the question, what is love, has also existed. Like I mentioned last week, the passage we looked at then and this morning's passage are the perfect bookend passages to this week in which we celebrated Valentine's Day. And there are so many people out there that have no clue what it is, no clue what love actually is. In 1984, Tina Turner recorded the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? <laughs> and in 1993, the artist Hathaway performed a single entitled, What is Love? You're welcome. You now have those songs stuck in your head. <laughs> a kid at Kids Night Out this past Friday when uh, Sean Shabby was leading the lesson and, and asked the same question, What is love? What do you guys think love is? What? One of the kids yelled out, love is a myth. I don't, I don't know where that came from. But, but so many people have the question, what is love? And they don't necessarily have an answer to it. As we've seen with our study in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church struggled a lot with many different issues. As one biblical scholar elaborated on, which we'll lean on this morning, these verses, verses 4 through uh, 5, just two verses, are Paul's antidote, or just part of Paul's antidote to all the issues that, Paul, that, that the Corinthians have been struggling with and what Paul has been pointing out to them this whole time. As such, similar to his lists of spiritual gifts found both in this letter and elsewhere, this list that Paul gives here is not exhaustive. You can't just look at this list of what love is and say, okay, that's it. There's nothing outside of this. This list is also not exhaustive. But it gives an idea of what biblical love is. There's more to what love is. But especially pertinent to the Corinthian church, Paul gives several concrete definitions of the characteristics of love. In other words, several concrete definitions of what love is. So if one is struggling with answering the question, what is love, they need not look any further in starting to understand it than 1 Corinthians 13, verses, starting in verses 4 through 5. So with all this in mind, let's look at some characteristics of love and begin to answer the question, what 
is love. So the first point that we come to this morning is what it is. We have a couple of definitions. Paul starts right out here. These verses, and maybe you thought of this as we read these over together as a, as a congregation, these verses are going to sound pretty familiar to most of us because they seem to be read at every wedding se- ceremony, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Some people leave some things out, but by and large, a lot of this is read at different wedding ceremonies. So we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's, that's fine. There should be one located in a pew in front of you. Uh, please, uh, please take that and, and look that up. If you don't know where it is, look it up in the table of contents contents or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. It's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting of verse 4, the very first part. That's all we're going to read for this second. Love is patient. And we're going to stop there. Love is patient. This first one is the same fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians 5.22. And therefore, it is not a humanly sourced patience. The word used here is meant to describe a divinely regulated and divinely directed patience. It doesn't mean that you don't get angry or annoyed at someone. It's an extent you take that anger and you extend that anger a long ways into the future. You don't deny that it exists, but what you do is you take it and you push it into the future. You extend it into the future, not to plan revenge, but to let God do something with it. You say, I'm not going to do anything about this right now because I know I'm only going to act rashly. I'm going to extend it into the future and let God have a chance to do something with it. That's what this word means here, patience. The word for patience or long-suffering in the Greek is a combination of two words, long and passion or anger. In other words, patience is taking that initial anger. You don't ignore, you don't uh, say that it doesn't exist. You acknowledge it, but you take that initial anger or annoyance towards someone and you purposely extend it a long ways and an indeterminable way into the future. That's what patience means in the Bible. It's saying, I recognize that I'm angry or annoyed at this person, but I'm not doing anything rash. I'm not retaliating. I'm not having a knee-jerk reaction to what they're doing. I'm taking this anger. I recognize for what it is. I'm taking this anger or annoyance and extending it away from me, and I'm going to allow God to handle this situation. I'm going to let him have a chance to do something with this. So patience is not just closing your eyes really tightly and saying, I'm going to keep being patient with this person. That's not what patience is. You can only do that for so long before you blow up, right? We all know that. We're all humans sitting here. It's actually doing something about the situation. You're not ignoring it. You're not sweeping it on the rug. You're doing something about it. You're doing something about the situation. Taking that situation and what the person is doing and saying, I'm not going to do anything about this now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to push it into the unknown future and let God handle it. He's going to work it out. The Corinthians had trouble with not retaliating when someone else wronged them. Paul had to already rebuke them for taking each other to court with lawsuits over the littlest things in the beginning part of chapter 6. 
He's already told them in chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So why are you taking each other to court? You should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. Surely this is not too big for you to handle. And when the church would gather for communion and those in the lower socioeconomic statuses were kicked out of the dining room and relegated to the common area where the inferior portions of the meal served to them, they were wronged. That was a real thing that happened. They were wronged. They probably held some bitterness towards those in the higher socioeconomic statuses who thought of themselves as more superior. But retaliation is never the answer. Retaliation is never the answer. Lashing out in anger to someone you're angry or annoyed with is never the answer. We know that always, things make, that always makes things worse, right? It always makes things worse. And yet our flesh screams at us to react that same way time and time again, to just lash out in anger. But the more we see every situation and what someone else does to anger or annoy us is that we need to take that and not react to it, but rather extend it into the unknown future and leave it in God's hands, the more divinely sourced patience and long-suffering God will develop in us. The more divinely sourced patience and long-suffering will become. And that's the first part of what love is. The first point, part. But each of these characteristics are not standalone characteristics. They all connect with each other. And so you can't just say, love is patient, and that's it. And the verse. It's connected to the next thing. They're not standalone things. They all connect with each other and make up together what love is. That's seen in these first two characteristics. Patience and kindness. That's what we're going to read next. See, patience is just the first step in what love is. The second step is kindness. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. Now the word kindness has been watered down a lot in our understanding of it today. See, today, what can pass for kindness is that one can be defined as kind by simply smiling or not acting like a jerk in any given situation. Just simply for not doing that and just smiling. You're seen as kind. That's what passes for kindness these days. If you don't punch somebody in the face right away, you're kind. <laughs> but that's not what real kindness is, and that's not what real love is. The word for kindness, both as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, and then referenced again here in verse 4, is defined as useful, profitable, or serviceable. Now that's completely different from our culture's understanding of what kindness is, isn't it? Useful, profitable, or serviceable. In other words, kindness is defined by God as useful service. That's what kindness is. Useful service. Kindness is serving someone else. Well, that takes love to a whole new level now, doesn't it? 
So in connection with patience, patience takes wrongs and extends them far away into the unknown future for God to handle. But that's only half of the equation. Kindness is the other half. After that wrong is extended away and put into God's hands, we are now to take the focus of our, off of ourselves and put it on the person who wronged, angered, or annoyed us and think about them. That's radical. That's, that's, that's huge. Whoa. That is radical. This is what love is. Kindness makes us think of the other person, not thinking about our own feelings anymore and placing ourselves in their shoes. Maybe someone is acting out in anger towards you because they're having a bad day and they don't know how to act. Maybe somebody wronged you without even thinking about it and they had no intention of wronging you. Kindness puts ourselves in the other person's shoes, giving them the benefit of the doubt, and saying, "What can I, even though they've angered and annoyed me, what can I do to make their day a little easier? What can I do to serve them now? That is what real love is. That's what love is, because as we'll see, love is putting the other person ahead of yourself. That's what love is. Putting the other person ahead of yourself. In marriage, what you're committing to on your wedding day is to put the other person ahead of yourself in every way, on every day, not just the easy ways and not just the easy days. That's what you're committing to. Why is this what love is? Because this is exactly what Jesus did. And Jesus is the embodiment and epitome and example of love. Did Jesus ever react out of his flesh? Did he? (laughs) I'm glad you guys are still with me. Okay. (laughs) Did Jesus ever lash out in anger at anyone? Yes, and we'll get to that. But did Jesus ever lash out because he was just really hungry at someone? No. Did Jesus ever be rude or curt with someone because he was exhausted? No. The only time Jesus responded with silence, curtness, or what others may have misconstrued as rudeness was when the Pharisees tried to trip him up or get away with something. When he responded in anger to a situation, such as driving the money changers out of the temple with a whip, was a divinely directed and righteous anger. That's what we talked about with patience. It was divinely directed. Not because he was wronged, but because his father's house was being defiled. That's why he was angry. In fact, Jesus was the opposite of how we usually want to react to others. The opposite. Even when Jesus was exhausted, he still stuck around to heal people and teach them. Even when the disciples were just not getting it, Jesus didn't lose his patience with them. He continued to help them understand what he was getting at. When he had been teaching all day and was probably starving himself, he didn't send the crowds of 4,000 or 5,000 away. He still had compassion on them to feed them. And when evil men nailed him to a cross, what did Jesus do? 
He asked the Father to forgive them because he knew they didn't know what they were doing. Jesus is both the epitome and our example of patience and kindness. That of putting himself in others' shoes and serving them to help them. That's what love looks like. Next, to further describe love, Paul explains it in the light of what it's not. And sometimes this is even more effective than saying what it is. We're talk, we talk about what it is, the first two uh, 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 things here, and then that we're going to talk about what it's not. The next part of verse 4, we already read love is patient, love is kind. Now we have the first is not, is not jealous. Again, love is putting someone else ahead of yourself. That continues to be seen in what is what love is not. Love is not jealous of someone else. Love is happy for someone else and what they have. Love is happy for someone else when their career track is way ahead of your own and being thankful for what job God has given to you. Love is happy for someone else in what life circumstances God has given to them and thankful to God for how he has provided for you and protected you and is growing you. Love is happy for someone else in what material possessions God has entrusted to them and being thankful for what material possessions God has entrusted to you. Nothing ever good comes out of jealousy. It never does. It never does. Only good comes out of love and being happy for someone else and being thankful for what you Next, we read, love is not boastful or arrogant. We have here, love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Remember what I've referenced before as to how the Corinthian church could have been labeled as prideful arrogance, right? If you, as you read through this letter, 1 Corinthians, that's what you see time and time and time again prideful arrogance. But you know what? We can't point our finger at them because we see it all. Everything we see in 1 Corinthians, we see in ourselves too. We know the Corinthians had a lot of issues with jealousy and with boastfulness and with arrogance. We see that in Paul's rebukes towards them and their disunity over human minister loyalty. Paul notes this directly when he says, you are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you just acting like people of the world with this disunity? We also see this in Paul's rebukes towards them and their boastful arrogance over their no-strings-attached, bold acceptance of the disgusting sexual sins someone in their church was actively engaged in. Something that wasn't even common among the pagan heathens, Paul says. That's not love, as Paul says here in verse 4. Complete acceptance... I'm going to step on some toes here. Complete acceptance of something that is clearly sin according to Scripture and then boasting about your acceptance and tolerance is not love, no matter how you paint it. Why? Because what you're doing 
is you're pushing someone further and further down the road of destruction and smiling in their face and saying it's perfectly fine. Love is also not bashing someone over the head with the Bible and telling them what a horrible sinner they are. Love is sensitively and gently directing someone towards what Scripture teaches is right according to God's standard and God's standard alone. That's what Jesus did. When he sat and ate with people who were openly sinning, he wasn't accepting their sin as perfectly fine. He sat with them, which was abhorrent to the Pharisees, but what was he doing when he did so? He wasn't just partying with them. He was teaching them about the kingdom of God, of which the important aspect is repentance. When Jesus didn't publicly judge the woman caught in adultery, he didn't say to each his own, Whatever floats your boat. He didn't say that in response to it. He said, I don't judge you, but go and what? Sin no more. The, the passage that a lot of people throw in the faces of those of us who hold to biblical standards and truth say, look, Jesus never judged anyone is the same passage where Jesus clearly points out that what the woman had done was sin. He didn't accept it as perfectly okay. He used it as an opportunity to lovingly point out to the woman that what she did was sin and call her to repent of it. He called her to repent of it when he said, go and don't do that sin anymore. Or go and don't live in that sinful way anymore. We also see the Corinthians' boastful arrogance when there were those who didn't care about flaunting their so-called Christian liberty in the faces of those who hadn't grown out of their previous direct connection with pagan practices. Those who thought there was nothing wrong with partaking in pagan temple celebrations and consuming meat that was blatantly sacrificed to idols and were flippantly leading those who were still connected to the pagan aspect of it to join with them and therefore cause them to sin certainly were not being loving towards those brothers and sisters, were they? No. They were only thinking about themselves. Love, as Paul has already referenced, would be thinking about those brothers and sisters and putting yourself in their shoes and serving their spiritual growth by giving up that aspect of Christian liberty. In other words, kindness. And lastly, like I mentioned last week, the Corinthians had real trouble with those who had the more supernatural spiritual gifts like tongues people who had the gift of tongues thinking of themselves as superior to those who had the more so-called inferior spiritual gifts. So Paul had to dismantle that whole boastful, arrogant kind of thinking and show that every gift is useful for the kingdom and it's God who decides who should get which gift in the first place. It's not up to them. Therefore, there's nothing to boast about. They have no place to boast about any gifts they have because they were gifts given to them. All they did was take them. <laughs> if you want to boast about anything, you can say, well, I took it. That's all I did. Love sees every one and every gift as valuable and, ha and having an integral place, purpose, and job in the body of Christ. 
Next, Paul references that love does not act unbecomingly. He starts out verse 5 with, Love does not act unbecomingly. You might wonder what that's talking about there. Well, it's the same phrase used in 1 Corinthians 7.36. But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiancée improperly, or in other words, acting unbecomingly, and will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes, it is not a sin. And what I'm pulling out of there here, and this is tough, but what the beginning part of verse 5 is saying is that love does not act sexually towards somebody you're not married to. In other words, Paul instructs that if two people are not married yet, but in a relationship, especially a betrothed or engaged relationship, and they're finding themselves doing sexual things that are only reserved for a marriage relationship, they should go ahead and get married. No amount of inconvenience matches displeasing God and breaking the standard for sexuality and marriage he created at the beginning of time. Love does not cheat someone else out of God's best. It's tough. But love does not cheat someone else out of God's best. God's best is that a sexual relationship be only enjoyed within a marriage relationship. Seeking that kind of relationship outside of God's blueprint of blessing, that is the marriage relationship, cheats and wrongs yourself, but more importantly, cheats and wrongs the other person. If that's what is being sought, then that other person and their, and their standing before God is not being put ahead of your interests. Love, on the other hand, puts that other person's standing before God ahead of anything else and seeks making that right by bringing it in line with what pleases God and taking what steps need to be taken to get married. That's tough to process. That's tough. That's tough to process, especially in this culture. But that's what we just read in God's Word. That's what I'm going to preach. It's what Paul teaches love is not, and what love is here in 1 Corinthians 13.5. That goes hand in hand with what Paul says next, in the second part of verse 5. It does not seek its own. It's not self-seeking. If love is to put others' interests ahead of your own, then obviously love is certainly not self-seeking, right? Many more marriages would be saved if people got this one right. Marriage is not to fulfill your needs. I want to be very clear about that. Those of you who are married here, marriage is not to fulfill your needs needs. It is to fulfill your spouse's needs. It is to make sure your spouse feels as loved as they could be. It's to make sure your spouse is fulfilled. Men, it's to love your wife as Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself in every way for her. Women, it's to respect your husband 
and to build him up as he tries his best to lead your family in a Christ-like way. Those are not my words. I pulled those directly out of the book of, of, of Ephesians and the New Testament. One of the marital struggles the Corinthians struggled with was a misunderstanding of what Paul had apparently said in a previous letter. In chapter 7, Paul addresses the misunderstanding that married couples in the church should abstain from a sexual relationship. Paul says, no, that is not what I meant at all. And furthermore, each spouse does not have the right to deprive the other from engaging in a sexual relationship. That is how important it is to a marriage. He says... The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The only reason to abstain is to give yourself more completely to prayer, but then come together again as soon as you can. Love, especially in that area, is not self-seeking. It's certainly not abusive. But you put your spouse ahead of yourself. In addition, some of the women in the Corinthian church were casting off the gender roles that God established at the creation of man and woman. Boy, we're just going... We're, we're hitting every hot-button issue this morning, aren't we? <laughs> but when we covered this, you'll remember that I noted that this did not mean that men or women were made to be superior or inferior to the other. They were made to be equal in value to each other. But they did have created and established roles at the beginning. We saw from Scripture that the man is created to be the representative not only of the entire human race in terms of their sin, but also the representative of his family and church before Jesus. Men, you need to hear this, and I want this to come across crystal clear. It will be the man who, who will be held responsible before Jesus at the end for how he led his family and church. This is not a coveted position. The woman was created to not have this burden on her. She is freed to help the man lead his family and church. This is an honorable position because she is freed to help her family and her church to be the most glorifying to God as possible. And she doesn't need to worry about standing before God, before Jesus in the same way a man will have to be. Most interpersonal problems... I'm sorry. But the women in the Corinthian church were being self-seeking. They were casting off their role to claim the role of the leader that was reserved by God for the men. That was not love. For what they were seeking was to usurp the role of their husbands and the elders of the church. Love, then, is fulfilling the God-given role that God created you to have to the best of your ability and the gifts he's given to you to bring God the most glory as possible. Most interpersonal problems in general could be solved with us stopping for a moment and consciously taking the focus of our, off of ourselves and how I'm feeling or what I want or how I want something to go. Keeping that focus off of ourselves and how I feel and what I want and how I want something to go or, or keeping the focus on ourselves 
and how you feel and how you want, how you want something to go. According to God's word, that is not love. Again, keeping the focus on the other person and putting yourself in their shoes and serving them is love. Again, this is the key to what love is. Lastly, we have the last two parts of verse 5. It is not provoked, and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. These last two, and what we'll cover today, circle back and connect all the way back to what Paul says love is at the beginning of verse 4, what we started our time with this morning. Patience, or long-suffering, and kindness. The opposite of patience or long-suffering is being easily provoked or easily angered. You're always on edge, and it only takes a small thing said or a small annoyance to set you off, and you're just gone. You're not coming back. How in the world is that love? And yet many people allow stress or other worldly worries to keep them in this state of being on edge and losing it over every single little annoyance or, or inconvenience. And if you're one of these people, or if this is the season you found yourself in, this can and will do a lot of damage and destruction to your relationships than you want to think about. You cannot simply claim, tough, this is who I am. You all need to just deal with it. You cannot claim that. That is not love, as Paul clearly says right here. If you have anger issues, you need to deal with them. You might, it may very well be true that that's who you are, but that's not what Jesus wants you to stay as. God wants to make you more and more like Jesus, not for you to just keep being yourself and say everybody else just needs to deal with it because that is not love. You might think that your anger is not an actual problem and people need to stop being so sensitive. But if your rea first reaction to anything that you disagree with or are uncomfortable with or it's inconvenient or it's annoying or you just don't like it is anger... That's exactly what Paul is talking about right here. Being easily provoked. That's a sin. And that's not love. You need to be honest with yourself. You need to confess it to God, and you need to start being healed from that. That may need professional help. That's okay. Constant anger will only destroy you and you need to admit that something needs to change. The opposite of this constant anger is long-suffering. The antidote to constant anger is instead of seeing everything everyone else is doing as annoying and as being inconvenient to you, to stop thinking about yourself and put yourself in the other person's shoes. Over time, this will get easier. It won't always be that hard. It will get easier. The more things you stop and con consciously extend away from yourself and hand over to God, the more patience He will grow in you. The more long-suffering you will become. This is a very important aspect of what love is. 
how to respond to people and situations no matter how they make you feel. This also extends into the long term. The last part of verse 5. It does not take into account a wrong suffering. Love, this may be news to some of you. Love is not keeping a checklist of everything people have done to wrong you in the past, as Paul references in verse 5. Love is not keeping a checklist that you dredge up to people every so often. Recognizing that you're doing this will solve a lot of problems in marriages, families, and in your general interpersonal relationships. If you are always dredging things up to other people that they've done to you in the past, as we see clearly here, that is not love. It is not love to constantly be dredging things up to the past to other people. That is only destructive. Nothing will ever be solved that way. Why? Because healing will never be able to take place if wounds are constantly being reopened. The antidote to this bitterness is not only forgiveness, but again, circling back to the beginning part of verse 4, kindness. Putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Trying to see things from their perspective. And instead of marking down their wrong on your mental list, or even thinking about it, and holding it against them ever again, this is, this is unheard of. Serving them. Wow. Wow. That's what love is. Finding out how you can act more like Jesus towards them. That is what love is. Again, the key to what love is, is putting others' needs and interests ahead of your own. Jesus said this exactly when he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Jesus doesn't say, love yourself first and then love your neighbor like that. He says, love your neighbor in the same way you would love yourself. The command is to love your neighbor. The command is not to love yourself. The command is not love yourself and then with that love, love your neighbor. The command is love your neighbor as you would yourself. The, uh, the command is to love your neighbor, not yourself. So what love is, is loving God first with all your heart, soul, and mind. And how does Jesus say we love him? By obeying his commands. We love God by not only spending time with him in prayer and in his word, but by seeking to please him with the way we live our lives. That then flows into the second commandment in what love looks like towards others. Since we live the rest of our lives in selfless obedience to God, we live out love in selflessness and putting their interests and needs ahead of ourselves. It's so simple, and yet it's something God will be growing in us for the rest of our lives. In what areas, these are the questions we need to ask ourselves, in what areas do we need to be more loving towards others? Towards our spouse? Towards our children? Towards other family members? Towards your brothers and sisters sitting together with you here? 
Last week, we looked at the power of what the absence of love looks like. Today, we looked at practical definitions of love and what love looks like and practical definitions of the flip side of that. Next week, we'll look at the greater meaning of love and the power of that meaning in our lives. Similar to last week, we all must take hard looks at ourselves. This is not an easy message to get through. Amen? (laughs) We all must take hard looks at ourselves and see where we need more love. See what needs to be changed. We all must ask God to pour that love into us and grow more in us. And like last week, what we can do is surrender more and more of ourselves to the Holy Spirit's transformation and God growing more of this love in us. Love is a lot easier to understand and live out than we might have thought. It's not some ethereal concept, always just out of grasp. It's actually very understandable and very practical. It's who Jesus is and what he exemplified in every situation, especially, I want to make, I want to make sure this is, you see this is important, especially when he was spit on and he was mocked and he was beaten and he was nailed to a cross. Paul explained this exactly in his letter to the Philippian church, and this is what I want to end our time with this morning. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That attitude that Christ Jesus had is the definition of love. That is what love is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tough, but very important, very powerful passage. Lord, I pray that when we hear it read or we read it ourselves, that it has new meaning for us now. Lord, I pray that we would take a hard look at ourselves and and, and humble ourselves, as, as Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Humble ourselves. See what ways need to be changed. See what areas need to be changed. See what areas that love is lacking in. See what areas that we ask you to pour your love into so that it can overflow out of us. Lord, I pray that this message wouldn't be one that we would just conveniently ignore or sweep under the carpet, but Lord, we let, we let it infiltrate our lives. We let it seek, sink deep into our hearts and make a real change in our lives. I pray that you would give us the humility to do so through your Holy Spirit and let us see what you do with that. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.